Welcome back to Revision, a podcast that interviews Columbia undergraduate writers about their writing lives. I'm Alexander, and I'm sitting here with our producer, Jesse. How's it going, Jesse? Pretty good. How are you? I'm all right. So what you reading this week? So this week, I've been consumed with reading for school, but I can recommend you two articles that I thought were quite exceptional. The first is on NewYorkMagazine.com, and it's called The Uncomfortable Power of Pop Music Cruelty by Alexandra Malatkow, and it combines the theory of Maggie Nelson with discussing the kind of violently sexual subject matter of the weekend's song lyrics. I, I like how it brings together high and low pop criticism, and I, I think it's really worth a read. And the second article I can recommend is on the London Review of Books by Christian Lorenzen. It's called Driving Through a Postcard, and it's basically his experience of going through New Hampshire during the primary season and sitting in bars, sitting in diners, protests and rallies, talking to real people. And he really gives an image of on the ground what it's really like, not from a media perspective, but from a person perspective. That sounds a Which, lot more interesting <laughs> than what I've been reading. But yeah, I think, I think it definitely communicates what it's really like in New Hampshire, especially for people who are passionate about their candidates during the primary season. Sounds good. What are you reading this week? Well, I'm in thesis hell. Um, it's not hell. I chose to do this. That's what I tell myself. Um, and I'm, I'm doing my, my thesis on this housing project in St. Louis. And I was, I had this kind of dorky moment in the Strand the other week. And I haven't actually started reading this book that I'm holding in my hand. It's called Defensible Space, Crime Prevention Through Urban Design by Oscar Newman. And it's a really, like, it, it's a foundational text in a lot of ways. Um, architects who were trained in, you know... 80s, 90s, probably. And I, I have a lot of problems with it, just from all of the re- sort of material I've read about it, because it, it kind of sets forth this idea that a lot of social ills that occur in high-density places like housing projects um, are kind of solely based on the architect- architecture as opposed to more systemic uh, policy problems or, or other things. Um, it's interesting. A lot of pictures. That's really why I'm looking at it. Because I'm looking at it. I'm really just looking at it for the pictures. Because um, <laughs> that's what my thesis is on. Perfect. Um, but it was like really cool to sort of find it in the wild. Like I, I had kind of anticipated needing to spend a gazillion on Amazon because it's out of print right now. Um, and it's like cute to have this this sort of first and edition. The price on the cover is two ninety five. That just is know. not <laughs> what I paid. Um, I saw the price on the cover right below the actual price, which oh. was ten times that amount. Um, That's about right. But yeah, it was really it was cool to find, so I'm happy with it. Nice, good yeah. job. So this week on revision, we talked to Eliza Callahan, and Eliza is a junior at Columbia College studying creative writing and the visual arts. She is one half of the band Jack and Eliza, who, in addition to providing our theme song, they have been featured in Nylon Magazine, Paste Magazine, The New York Times, among many other sites. Their debut album, Gentle Warnings, came out in 2015, and Eliza also notably won the International John Lennon Songwriting Award at just 15 years old. What did you talk about this week, Alexander? We talked about Anne Carson, her, her writing process for the sort of different forms that she works in, which include prose, poetry, and songwriting, and then the elementary school poetry pasted on the walls of her high school. And I guess the last thing I sort of want to add is, you know, I really appreciate her taking time out of her kind of busy rehearsal schedule. You should definitely check out the music. It is available wherever you get your music, iTunes, Spotify. I think they're on SoundCloud even. It's on the internet. It's on the internet, basically. If you can listen to this, you can listen to them. So uh, <laughs> hope, hope you enjoy the conversation. 
So every week we, we try to ask folks um, about their favorite words or like words that move them some way, positively or negatively. Do you have any any such words? I really, I was actually talking about this with someone, I think it was two days ago, that I really, this, can it be in a different language? Sure. Yeah, I I like the the word limina a lot. It's a Latin word. It means like threshold or doorway. And I don't know, I I don't study classics anymore, but I, I, was, I thought I was going to be a classics major, actually. I loved Latin all through high school and before that a bit. And that word, I've always liked it. So that's a favorite word. I don't know why. Maybe it was like a word that stuck with me. So when I was translating, I always knew it. So I didn't have to look it up. And maybe that's why I came to like it. But I don't know why. I like the idea of that word for threshold or doorway. And we get liminal in that too. Where, where do you even get, like, where does that word come up in? Like, what kinds of texts? In, in the word limina? In, yeah. It comes up in a lot of, in a lot of Latin There's like, a lot texts. of thresholds I mean, I and doorways. There are, actually. I mean, the Aeneid, it comes up in a bunch. Catullus, it comes up in. Yeah, I think also maybe just in my, like, exercise workbooks mm-hmm. that I had. But, yeah, that was just a word that I always loved. I guess one thing that, that I always think about in terms of, of writing is like the idea of location, right? And you've you've been in New York City your entire life, correct? I have, yeah. Um, does that like does being in New York have any kind of you know, does it leave its imprint on your writing? Or or do you do you sort of write your way out of New York ever? That's a a good question for me because I I think I think about it more now than I used to. Although it's funny, a lot of my writing is not necessarily married to a location that's, you know, specific. I kind of like to create, although that's not true, I do write usually a lot about aspects of New York, but not necessarily rooted in New York. So I take bits of culture or, I guess, stuff like that, and that gets its way into my work. But, yeah, it's not necessarily, like... New York heavy. <laughs> mm-hmm. What what sort of like ephemera do you find yourself drawn to? I mean, I it's funny. I write a lot about artists, which I feel like is a result of where I grew up and who I was surrounded by. Neither of my parents are actually artists, but it seems like all of their friends are artists um, and kind of characters that I've grew up around. That I've grown up around, I guess. That is actually very linked to New York because I think they're the type of characters that all end up here. And that's kind of what I find myself writing about a lot or just picking up on or using bits of those characters in my, in my writing. And do you, do you find yourself, um, because of this sort of like focus on art, looking more toward or like writing more toward a visual sense or, or do you just sort of take the kind of ideas and concepts I, it really depends, but I actually do find sometimes when I'm trying to write, uh, if I'm stuck, I will definitely look at photographs or visual art to kind of get me get me going or go to an exhibit. I'm definitely very kind of inspired by, definitely by visual. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go to exhibits. I went to, there was a Wolfgang Tillman's exhibit, I think it was at the Werner Gallery. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I like 
putting my own, you know, looking at photographs and deciding what those characters are like based on the way they look, creating worlds, I guess, out of that. What's your, what does your workspace look like, like, when you're trying to write? Like, physically? Yeah, like, what's the, what's the, like, the physical environment? It varies, but I, I really like to be very alone. Like, I can't work in a cafe, or I can't, I can't write creatively in the library, or even papers, for that matter. I like to be very secluded when I write. So usually in my room, not in my bed though. I don't like writing, sitting in bed on the computer. Usually, yeah, at my desk. And do you have like anything? Um, like I, I, I write usually right below all of my books, and sometimes when I get stuck, I'll just sort of look at the titles. Like, do you have a similar? Oh, in that sense, yeah, some, yeah, I definitely do. Kind of have like stacks of things that I'm interested in, and I'll you know flip, flip something open if I'm stuck. Kind of get things moving again. But yeah, it's it's usually visual that I use to kind of pick me up. And then when you're when you're writing for um, for your band, do you like what's that kind of collaboration like? Does that like how does that kind of play out? Yeah, it's it's funny because I feel like when I'm writing poetry or even prose, I don't I really write a lot of short prose, but I haven't really ventured into anything beyond like very very flash fiction. <laughs> but I find myself obsessing kind of over every word sort of deal. But when I write lyrics, I don't do that at all, which might be a really bad thing. I, I don't, I'm not as proud of the lyrics that I write as I am of, you know, my writing. Not that I'm proud of my writing, but if I had to choose one or the other. And I think that's kind of a result of the fact that well, I'm, I mainly write with my bandmate, um, Jack, and we usually write the melody. We really, it's pretty much an entirely collaborative process, but we usually write kind of the chords and the, the melody before the words come. So the words kind of find their own ways into the piece that aren't necessarily as calculated, which, which I think is a good thing, too, because it's kind of more raw that way but sometimes we'll just be using words as not necessarily filler but it's like what comes to mind while we're writing the melody and that will kind of work its way into the piece and then when we go back to write the lyrics we're already kind of married to certain phrases and words that we have there that kind of came with the song kind of like a package deal like you get this word now that you have this melody <laughs> that I think is funny, although there are some songs that we have one song. I think I actually sent I sent in some lyrics mm -hmm. to you, and those lyrics came out of that was Jack had fully written chords, and I had kind of jotted down some notes that day and put words to the music that he wrote, which is rare for us. We don't usually work that way. But I sent in those because those were lyrics that I could say I wrote and not both of us. Although I could have brought ones, but we had both written. Um, 
And do you, do you feel like there is, like, when you're looking at them, can you sort of be like, okay, that was my line, that was my line, or does it feel very much like we both wrote this together, this is entirely collaborative? Yeah, we, we usually, we don't really think of it that way. I think we kind of think of it as a very full-on collaboration. I don't even remember kind of what choruses I wrote or what verses he wrote. or It kind of all just blends together, and I think it's... It's best that way, too. And so what, what, what for you is the kind of disconnect between, like, besides the sort of obsessive care to language, but between, like, lyric writing and then doing the, like, short prose forms or doing poetry? Like, what is a completely separate mental process? or? Yeah, I would say it's entirely separate. And I think a goal of mine is to have it not be as separate um, as it is. But when I write my poetry or my prose it's usually yeah as a, it's very calculated and it's very character based the the lyrics don't tend to be character based at all and they're much more general which is going to change in our next kind of batch of music to come but um as far as what we've written before yeah it's it's usually a much more general <laughs> kind of letting go of an emotion there, there can you know some of the stories have a, a loose narrative I think or some of the songs have a loose narrative but not not in the way the poems or the um, the prose do although yeah and I also don't think they're nearly as visual the lyrics do you ever listen to music while you while you do your other kinds of writing or does it just like does that make your brain I just do go but usually either if it's in a different language I like to listen to, like, Bossa Nova. Um, I like Astrid Gilberto or Jao Gilberto and, yeah, Elis Regina, like, Brazilian music while I write, which I've done for a really long time. But, yeah, I, I like to write to music. It kind of, it can really get me, get me going, I guess. But, yeah, usually, usually music that either doesn't have lyrics or have lyrics in languages that I don't know. Yeah, sometimes I listen to, like, drone music. <laughs> yeah. Like, but at a quiet volume, kind of put myself, but that kind of got old quickly. Yeah, there's only there's only so much of that you can take. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to, like, girl talk sometimes, yes. and that'll just, like, it's really good if I'm trying to write something that is not at all creative. Yeah. Um, Gotta bang it out. Yeah, it just it keeps you up, like, because it yeah. changes every 30 seconds. Um you know, one thing I guess I was wondering was, at what point did you, like, do you think of yourself as a writer first? Or, like, is there, like, do you kind of have these, like, compartmentalized identities with all the sort of things that you're involved in? And and when, you know, when did sort of each of these, like, strands kind of start in your life? Yeah, so these, I don't know if I, like, necessarily, I definitely yeah, I guess I think of myself as a writer and, and a musician. The hardest one, for, I, I study visual arts as well, and like I have a hard time saying like I'm an artist, but I have a much easier time saying I'm a writer or a musician. Anyhow, I, I went to a school that, well, well, I started playing classical guitar when I was three years old. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to my Brazilian friend, her, her mom wanted her to actually play classical guitar and neither of my parents are musically inclined whatsoever and I was in preschool with this girl and they were like does Eliza want to join this Suzuki method group because Mm -hmm. you have to do it in groups so they needed a third kid they already had a second kid and they needed me as a third kid my parents were like 
I don't know, like three and a half is really young. <laughs> That's like, starting pretty early, yeah. And, you know, we can't offer her any sort of assistance. <laughs> and I ended up going and I really, I really loved it. And I became obsessed with playing guitar. And I like say that I was better when I was like five or six than I am now because I, I, I don't know. I was just, I practiced more. You haven't kept up with the Um, Suzuki method. I haven't. (laughs) So I started playing guitar from a very young age and that was definitely, that was my first instrument. I then kind of, when I was like seven or eight would start, I would go on GarageBand and I would like click record and I'd record these like stream of consciousness (laughs) that lasted like eight minutes with like no form. And that was kind of where I actually started kind of writing music. And I think by the time I was like eight or nine, I had written, I kind of understood the general form of a of a pop song or a rock song, you know, verse, chorus, verse, verse, chorus, chorus, bridge, you know. Mm-hmm. And I started, yeah, I started writing little, I would call them ditties at this point. <laughs> and yeah, I've, I studied jazz as well at that point. But I was really, ex- you know, excited by the Beatles when I was seven or eight. And that's what made me want to write music. Um, so write, write as in the writing the music, not writing the lyrics at this point? or At this or point, both? lyrics have, have come into play. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that actually... So I went to this school in Brooklyn called St. Anne's. And I went there from when I was five until, you know, I graduated um, high school. And they have a resident poet mm-hmm. um, named Marty Scoble, who is an incredible guy. And he teaches poetry to everyone from age five onward. And it becomes optional in high school or, or middle school. I don't know. I always took it, so I don't know when it... So mandatory poetry. So mandatory poetry That's, from yeah. age like five to at least 10 or 12. And he comes into every class, you know hands out a bunch of poems, you write poems, submit it for the packet for next week, everyone reads them. So that was just kind of like everyone did that. five-year-old poetry workshop. Five-year-old, I mean, these these poems are amazing. And actually the walls of the school are covered in the lower school poetry, which is great because usually better than the upper school poetry. Definitely better than the middle school poetry, which gets... Well, when you get into like the vampires and the blood, Um, yeah. Yeah, and the vampires and the blood. But yeah, the the lower school poetry is phenomenal. And yeah, it fills the hallways of the school. So the school is definitely very poetry-oriented. And then you can choose to continue that if you want. But I took Marty's classes till the end. And he, uh, he knew I played music. And, you know, we always talked about the idea of putting your poetry to um, to music, which I did at a young age. And it's funny because I stopped doing that when I became more serious about songwriting. I kind of separated the two. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly when that was, but probably when I was like 13 or 12. But the stuff, my stream of consciousness stuff is just basically me like singing poems over chords. <laughs> and yeah, like pretty... Pretty absurd. Um, that would be like the greatest hits album yeah, in ten greatest. years. Yeah, we'll, put that we'll on the special collectors that. vinyl. Yeah, I had my friends like talk in the background. I also sang in a heavy English accent. So like put on an accent yeah. while you were trying to sing. Yeah. How did that go? It doesn't sound real. <laughs> my voice is very high. Yeah. So that's 
I guess how it began <laughs> way back. I guess one thing I wanted to, to come back to was your hesitance, I guess, with the word artist. What, what is it about that particular kind of identity, I guess, that, that makes it so difficult to claim? Because I, I struggle with stuff like people will be like, yeah. oh, writing is an art form. Or like when my friends are, or we had to watch this experimental film and, for one of my classes and my sweetmates who none of them are in any kind of creative field were like making fun of me. They're like, oh, you creatives. And I, I kind of like had a, like a pushback. I was like, oh, I'm a writer, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider myself like an artist. But I, and I feel like I should. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I definitely enjoy making visual art as much as I enjoy writing music or you know poetry but I don't feel like I'm there yet to be able to call myself I feel like I'm just kind of getting into it now and I I, maybe in a few years I'll be able to call myself an artist but I don't know not yet and not not saying that my music or my poetry is good enough for me to call myself a musician but I just feel like I'm more in a place to call myself that than I than I am as far as visual art goes. Yeah, you almost have to like give yourself permission to like yeah. be something. Maybe I have to make something I like more <laughs> than I have. But yeah, I'm I'm working at it. I think every time I look back at something I've written that's even a little bit old, I'm like, oh god. I have that like just visceral, please don't let anybody ever see this. Um, and so what is it like to sort of have you know, records of, like, former younger selves kind of out there permanently on the internet. Yeah, I think I think it's hard because that's something our generation, or I guess our generation and kind of the one before us has to deal with like, more than previous generations. But I think a lot of, like, being an artist or a musician or a writer is accepting or just accepting what you've done in the past and, like, embracing it even if you don't necessarily like it in that moment because it's just kind of a part of your creative lineage and I don't know I've kind of tried to come to terms with it I think for the first time I like looked back at a poem I wrote I mean I I don't like anything I wrote in high school but but um a poem that I wrote first semester here and I was like that's not horrible like I could live with that but hopefully as hopefully as I continue to kind of understand who I am as a writer which I guess you never really can but be more a place where I'm putting out what I what I kind of intend to put out that will change but I don't think it ever will yeah I feel like at a certain point you just sort of have to like force yourself to feel tenderness yeah for a younger self mm-hmm. otherwise you're just carrying around like a lot of like oh god yeah I mean some of my like really early songs and like that's cute (laughs) that's because I was really young is it good I don't know but yeah we'll see only time will tell yeah I think I was uh, I've seen it all over the internet and like inspirational quote format but one of the things that I think Ira Glass said that really resonated with me is he was like yeah when you first start doing something you're gonna suck and the reason that you're gonna suck is because you have great taste and you understand the difference between your taste and your skill level and if you keep at it you're gonna get to where your taste is. Yeah, that's like pretty pretty right on. Yeah. I, I feel like it's just a progression, like a slow progression towards your own taste. And you know, the stuff that, the stuff that I've read, you know, the more you read and the more your taste kind of changes or evolves or matures, um, the more you're trying to get to that place, I guess. 
And I've seen you. I've seen you talk a little bit about your musical influences in other interviews, and, and the Beatles being a huge part of that. Do you have kind of a separate set of writing influences, or do they kind of mesh together? They're pretty separate for me. I really love Ann Carson. Um, I was, yeah, I don't know. I always loved Latin, and I studied Latin and ancient Greek, and I loved her translations, and I kind of fell in love with that when I was in like ninth or tenth grade, mm. and. I actually had a lot of fun when I was a senior. Um, my friend Gotama and I contacted her because we wanted to put on a production of Antigone, which mm-hmm. was her, her translation of Antigone. Mm-hmm. And she responded like, yeah, sure, <laughs> of course. Um, and so we put on a production of Antigone on kind of, we did the production on a set of stairs. We had all the characters standing on different, different stairs. It was a lot of fun. And... She always wrote back. We kind of talked to her while we were doing it, and she always wrote back and was, like, very terse, like... No capital no letters. No caps, AC, yeah. like... Um, but, yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of her writing. That definitely has kind of affected, um, I think, my approach to... I mean, I was translating a lot. Now that I don't um, study Latin, I, I've kind of stopped that, which is sad. I should probably pick that up again because I had so much fun doing it. But um, yeah, just paying attention to her word choice and her kind of economy of language and her melding of words, kind of just worlds, not words. Um, Although that's true. She definitely plays with language, yeah. Yeah, and her kind of playfulness with language was always something I really, really admired. I really love Lydia Davis. Mm. Um, yeah, kind of the list goes goes on, but I'd say Ann Carson for a while has been kind of the top of my list. The like point you're trying to to reach toward, kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know that I'm never gonna get anywhere near that point. <laughs> but um, but I just definitely like looked looked to her writing as something I really admire. One thing actually that interests me a lot in Ann Carson is this sort of sense of persona and performance in a lot of her work. Because I think a lot of your, you know, at least your lyrics stuff, you're performing it on a stage. Does that, you know, is that something you think about consciously? Like this idea of a persona or a performance in other parts of your writing? I think I sometimes do think think a bit about persona. But what I do think about more is kind of this weird kind of melding of worlds. And this like very kind of openness to kind of letting, like, the absurd into situations that aren't absurd, which I think she does really beautifully. She'll take a really kind of serious topic, and then she'll throw in something that is kind of absurd or out of the world of whatever she's writing in, and I think she does that really seamlessly. That's something I pay attention to a lot. I think there's... I forget. She says in one translation, I think it's Catullus the Catullus translation, but she says, speak with mute ash, parentheses, why? Like, there's just this, like, attitude thrown into this classical kind of translation that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Does it does it ever get difficult for you to kind of untangle the various kind of, like, layers that you might have to, like, kind of exist in at any given moment? Um, so I feel like, you know, one thing that I always think about is this idea of, like, you know, once something's out in the world, people, other people kind of want to lay, lay claim to it in some way. 
And so, and especially something like music, like where people are listening to it every single day or, or you know, like it's literally in their ear as they're walking somewhere. Does that, is that ever like a, a kind of boundary you have to navigate where you sort of have to push and say like, okay, well, this is the person on the stage, please don't talk to me, like that kind of thing or? I really appreciate the fact that the music that Jack and I write kind of exists in, in other people's worlds and for kind of whatever can be used for whatever purpose they need it to serve in their lives. Yeah, I think it's funny because really with music, especially I feel like once you kind of put it out there, it's just so not yours anymore. Mm-hmm. In a way that I feel like writing, I still, my like creative writing, I feel like kind of maintain this kind of ownership over whereas the music and maybe that just has to do with where music is at right now but I just feel like the minute it's out there it's just kind of not mine in any way yeah Yeah. which which I think has been interesting we get messages from people in all sorts of places it's funny I mean we're not you know popular band but it's funny that people you know people are starting to know who we are and we get messages from just everywhere, like India, London, just Russia, <laughs> you name it. Mm. Um, and it's interesting that our music kind of lives in their worlds as well. And that's kind of fun to think about and weird. Yeah, it's always sort of disorienting to be like, oh, like you were, yeah, I will never meet you. You were on the other side of the country from me. Yeah. But this thing that I made is something that you you interact with. That must be surreal. Yeah, like someone in like a fish shop in Paris is listening to our music versus how I've experienced it and how I created it is pretty surreal. I almost feel like guilty that people have to hear. <laughs> or I don't know, it's their choice, but... Why, why guilty? Not guilty. I just feel like I do want to revise things. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know that... Guilty is definitely not the right word, but I try not to think about things I wish I had changed. Because there's that editing hand that kind of wants to go back and, and finagle it. Yeah, definitely. There are just some lyrics or some moments where I'm like, no, no, no. Like, what were you thinking? But yeah, that's kind of what we talked about earlier. You just have to let it go, I guess. Yeah, I have to, have to sort of let it be. So you, you sort of mentioned how you, your writing process is very, when you're doing at least your personal work, it's sort of very isolated. Do you think of yourself as being a member of any kind of greater community? Or like, is the idea of community at all like important to you as a, a writer or, or a musician or an artist? I think as a musician, Jack and I are definitely kind of friends with a bunch of musicians and we play with certain people often and definitely have that sort of community. And because I'm so involved in that community, I haven't taken enough time, I feel, to be part of a writing community. It's funny, not many of my friends here write. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's horrible. Like, I've never gone to an open mic here or something, which is, I'm going to change. And I've that's, like, one thing on my, like, New Year's resolutions is that, like, I want to, you know connect more with people here because they're obviously like incredible writers and a lot to learn um, from the people here. And I haven't, haven't done that nearly as much as I should and wanted to. But I think that was because our music was kind of becoming a job for us in a way that pulled a lot of 
time and pulled me off campus. Uh, yeah, so a writing a writing community is something that, and it's funny because I write in a really isolated way, and I don't, I feel like, I, I, don't, I don't even think my friends have really ever <laughs> read my writing. Not because I'm, like, secretive about it, it's just, like, why? <laughs> I'm not also the like... sense of protectiveness, yeah. it seems like, yeah. And with visual arts, I definitely do have, you know, a little bit of a, a crew here that I kind of work alongside but it is funny writing is the most kind of isolated of the three for me which I hope to change actually yeah I feel like the writers on this campus are all kind of hiding almost like mm -hmm. it's like you know there'll be these events and uh, but it, it's not it isn't why like I, I think I went to my first open mic on campus I think I went to the four by four open mic in September and I'm a senior yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, and there's so much. There's so much here, but it's like, yeah, it's hard to find the little pockets. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think definitely working. You know, I always kind of wanted to have worked on. You know, tried to be on the staff of Four by Four, even Columbia Review or Cordo, but it just I've been so busy with the music at night that that kind of made that an impossibility with work and the music. So. Never had a chance to do that, really. Mm -hmm. But we'll see. Besides the sort of like obvious logistical, um, you know, challenges of things that come, what is it? How has having music become sort of a job? How has that changed your relationship to it? Has it? And are you afraid that that'll happen with sort of other parts of your? Uh, this sounds so hokey, like creative life. Like I hate, I hate the words. That just, like I hate saying yeah. that. But I, I feel think, like there's not yeah, a better no, phrase. I, I got you. Yeah, I think I think it's been really fun and it's been it's been great for me, I think, to have well, I would start out by saying I really like to be very busy. Like I don't do well with a lot of free time. I like yeah, I like to cram my schedule. I don't know why, but I I do. Oh, I feel you on that. Um yeah. so kind of the music thing has been has been great. It's been working out nicely with school and it's been busy and I don't think it's kind of I think because I'm in school it hasn't felt so job-like because I feel like when I'm at school it's like I'm doing this and I'm you know being a young adult and when I'm writing my music it's like I'm working but I'm also doing something creative but I think where music might begin to really feel like a job and I do take it very seriously is when I'm if I'm when I'm out of school and I'm doing that as what I'm doing but right now it's not like I've fully emotionally I'm committed but I haven't like fully committed to it in that way I don't think I'd ever be kind of sad I wouldn't be satisfied enough if I was just like just doing music I kind of like to do like I just said more than one thing at a time I think right now, no, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a job. There are definitely moments when we have to just deal with kind of like the business end of things. That's just like not fun, but it's like no different than like dealing with registration for classes. Yeah, or, or like coursework. Like, yeah, with coursework's. Um but I mean that that will change when I'm when and if I'm looking for that to fully support me. <laughs> I hope it doesn't change my relationship to music, but I've kind of always told myself that I'm not not that I'm not willing to struggle with my art, but I 
I want to stop making it a career when it's something that I'm no longer kind of enjoying because music is really kind of special to me in that way and I don't want to push it to a place that doesn't feel like enjoyment. Whenever that starts to go away, I'm going to be like, all right, time to find something else to kind of focus on and this to enjoy for now um, is how I've thought of it. I don't know if that's clear. Hey, it was like the, the kind of like terror of ruining something, ruining something that you love. Yeah. Or like working it to death. And then not, you know, it just becomes. And it kind of, it feels, yeah, it feels, it's funny because when you go on, when you go on tour, I mean, you know, I never fully understood why bands don't play their, you know, your favorite song and everyone else's favorite song at the end of a show. Like, you're like, why wouldn't they play the song everyone wants to hear? And it's like a really selfish reason, but it's like, you just don't want to play that (laughs) song anymore. And it's like, I don't care if they're five people or like 10,000 people here to see it or hear it rather but like I just don't want to play it anymore and that by the end of our tour this summer there are just a few songs where I'm like I I need a month off I need you know and you know I can only imagine that was like our first kind of two-month tour sort of deal but I can only imagine like a band like the Stones like however many years 50 years later like playing those songs like you know, Sympathy for the Devil for, like, the billionth time. And just, like, you know, I think a big thing is figuring out how to make, how to make yourself continue to enjoy it because Jack and I started kind of figuring out ways by the end of tour, like, let's play this intro differently or let's do this differently or let's make it harder for ourselves instead of trying to just do the same thing over and over again. And that's definitely something that's kind of a, a funny thing to think about when you're on tour because you get bored of playing the same thing over and over again. And the audience, I'm sure, can feel it. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, I was talking to um, Reed in Morningsiders, oh, and, yeah. and he was telling me about how every time they play Lightning, he has mm-hmm. to have to play it like way too fast, mm-hmm. which makes it like 15 times it. as hard because they want to get through it and just to keep it kind of interesting and hard to, yeah. to do. Um, it's just like, it's hard. It's, no matter like how good or how much someone other your quote unquote fans like like it. It's just you feel like it's not gonna be even worth it for them if you play it because you're not excited about it in that moment. But yeah, creating obstacles is is the way to kind of fix that, I guess. Yeah, I mean I'll be I'll be writing about um I, I tend to write I worry that I write the same essay again and again and again. And my, my professors tell me, oh no no it's different. But I'll definitely get to a point where it's like okay I have done this to death. I have been working on this for two you years. You do creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I write um, ten to fifteen, up to twenty page essays, and usually, like, I'll try to write about something else, and then I'll end up be like, "Well, fuck! Now I'm gonna talk about my hometown mm-hmm. for the zillionth time," <laughs> and I will definitely just have to like put it away, like not look at it, not think about it, and then pick something completely random else to do. So I definitely. Like the fatigue, I feel like. Yeah, and then you play the song where you take the, you know, piece of writing out of the drawer however many months later, and it, it can feel good if it's something that you liked when you started out, when you, when you, you know, when it was a new, fresh product. <laughs> um, it can feel good to play. Yeah, can I have like some of that, like, freshness yeah. back? Yeah. Um, what sorts of things do you find yourself gravitating toward? It's funny. I, like, I do find myself 
gravitating towards writing about the character of artists, which is like something kind of that's very general, but even if my story or what I'm writing about doesn't include an artist, I, in my mind it does sort of deal like their character. And I don't know, I've created my own idea of what an artist, and I'm thinking about in terms of like the crazy old people that my parents are friends with, who I grew up around, very different from the word artist that I like, I'm afraid to identify myself mm -hmm. with. Um, but I guess that's kind of one kind of topic or type of character that I find myself returning to. Um, and then when you say character, do you mean like kind of taking the voice of these people and trying to sort of like reorient your gaze through their eyes or kind of describing them or... It's not like one kind of given character, but it's kind of this beast that has been created in my mind from all these different kind of people that I've met. Um, I kind of try to write. I don't... Usually my what I write is, is not necessarily comedic, but like I like it to have some kind of comedic aspects included, whether that is like coming through and kind of its absurdity, or I usually like to write what seems like a serious piece, but add in kind of absurd kind of factors. Sort of like Anne Carson. Which, yeah, definitely was inspired by, by that. Um, aspect of her work which I've mentioned yeah I wouldn't I'd say that I'm trying to still kind of work out what it is that like I want to write about I think about it often like what do I want to write about and I'm definitely still figuring that out I think I I tend to write really short things like my poetry tends to be really short and so did my prose yeah I saw the like haiku that you sent me well, I like short things. Not not because I don't have an attention span for longer things, but I just, shorter things tend to kind of resonate more with me. And... I can see why you like Lydia Davis. Yeah, there you go. It also kind of comes from a fear of, like, fully committing, which we'll see. I think, or not necessarily a fear, but, like, I can fully commit to three lines, but I can't fully commit what I'm feeling to, like, 10 or 40 or 100. Um, yeah, I feel like if you're still, like, kind of trying to, like, find a subject, the idea of, of writing, you know, pages upon pages upon pages would just be exhausting, right? Yeah. Although I, it is funny because I do come up with very kind of clear ideas of what I'm writing about in that moment, even if it's for something that's like a haiku <laughs> or slightly longer. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm at the point of writing writing my obsession yet, which which I'm working towards. I've thought about actually. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's that's one of the hardest things. Like, I felt like I was, like, throwing my, like, face against my computer, um, sometimes literally, <laughs> for years, just trying to, because, like, I knew I wanted to write, and I could, like, articulate that I wanted to write, but I just didn't, like, I had all this pent-up energy, and I didn't have any kind of outlet that I could kind of pour it all into, and it made me just nuts, and then I kind of started working on a couple of pieces, and it was like, oh, shit, this is what I'm writing about. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. I, di I did notice that I write, like, a fair amount about, like, mothers, or usually, like, mothers in my pieces, 
or travelers. Those are two patterns. Yeah, and in, in just the, you know, the small selection that I was looking at, there was a kind of like drifty, travel-y sense that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, there's definitely some traveling aspect. But I definitely do take, you know, there's a lot of kind of, more so my mom's side of the family, but I definitely like include a lot of kind of familial scenes from her side that are kind of New York, you know, Jews from, you know, they've, yeah, third generation <laughs> New Yorkers sort of deal. Um, and yeah, her family's definitely kind of inspired, inspired something in my writing that kind of reoccurs. Yeah, it must be cool to like have a world to tap into when you're working. It's definitely a world, yeah. <laughs> well, what, are, what, are, what are the sort of defining, defining characteristics? It's hard to kind of just say. It's more of a feeling, um, or not a feeling, just like an attitude towards life that I don't necessarily fully relate to, but I've just grown up around, but not all the time, but they're still my family. So I kind of see it, and it actually kind of had to do with the older generations. I'm not sure what I what I sent to you, but there is one piece I wrote um, about my great aunt, Roberta, and she lived in Queens. Yeah, I read that, yeah. Yeah, and so a lot of kind of the setting and the attitude was inspired, obviously, by her as a human and the kind of world that she lived in. But I find that world to be just so different from mine that I, but as I said, I'm so familiar with it that I can kind of tap into it. And it's nice to kind of be able to tap into a world that's kind of not the one that I exist in, but one that I've existed around and sometimes in for my whole life. I guess that's something I think about. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have these sort of, like, familiar touchstones that may not be totally, like, they may not feel like home or, or it may not be totally accurate, but it's, like, places you can kind of go visit right. and kind of bring things out of. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, all that she since passed away and so have kind of that older generation that I was really tapping into. So now it's really kind of all in my memory, which I think is almost a better thing because I'm caring less about kind of the details and it's kind of a world that exists in an area in my mind. Yeah, um, the, there was this, I think it was, I, I, the last time I took a poetry class was in high school and now I'm taking a poetry class. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, I'm in my fiction class, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, like I, I, read, I kept up with reading it, but I just haven't, haven't written it. Um, but there was this textbook we read my, gosh, it was my, my junior year of high school. It's called The Triggering Town by Richard Hugo. And what he was talking about was this idea of you have this town or this place that kind of triggers you and you think it's the subject and then you start writing about it and then you find the subject. And so this, this sense of like as soon as you start letting go of the like actual details of a place or an idea, the closer you can get to some kind of yeah kind of meaning about it. Which I think is, yeah, like whenever I can't, I, I write a lot about the Midwest and about my home there, and I can't write it when I'm there, because I get so caught up on like, okay, well, this car is silver, and yeah, I know this exactly. car is silver. There's, the distance is definitely helpful, because you have it, and your mind can just take it where it needs to, but yeah, no, it's funny thinking about That is definitely kind of a world I do tap into, or try to. And then with, at least for me, when I'm reading something like Lydia Davis, or something that's extremely short, I think, oh God the editing that must have gone into that, right? Because, like, you, I'm sure she doesn't just produce magic two seconds. 
you know, short stories the way that she does. Um, do you, is, what, is that kind of how you arrive at, at some of your, your pieces? Like, is there a lot of, like, whittling down? Or, like, what is sort of your process? Um, I'm working on my editing skills. Yeah, there definitely is whittling down. I think with the short prose, definitely more so than the poetry. I, I definitely revise my short prose a lot more. And like you said about the kind of the Lydia Davis, there's just like, not that I'm comparing myself, but there, that, you know, there's a way that you kind of pair things. Once you have like a little chunk on the page, that whittling down actually becomes a lot. It, it's kind of natural because you kind of see where you need to kind of cut things out if you're trying to be like very economical with your words, which obviously she does. Yeah. Yeah, I do find myself kind of cutting out, but not not an overwhelming amount. But I probably should cut out more. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do definitely whittle down more with more with the prose than with the poetry. I feel like for some reason when I write poetry, I find it a lot harder to go back and work out, and I that might be because you know I feel like I labor a lot more over every little thing, even you know definitely more so than when I'm writing the the prose so just feels like more precious to just alter or slash yeah it, i feel like whenever you're reading or from my very distant memory of writing poetry and even trying to write i have to write sonnet crowns for tomorrow <laughs> there's this sense with poetry that it all kind of fits together a little bit more yeah and then you're like, like well if prose. i remove this piece then i need to remove this piece all the way over here yeah um which and I'm not a perfectionist, like, in any way, which I think works for and against me. But, yeah, I have just a, a much harder time touching, um, touching the poetry or, like, really going in, um, which is why it's, it's definitely really helpful to be in poetry workshops because people just can be like, this stanza should be two before that one, and... I feel like I've never would have never would have thought of that. Whereas I think with the with the prose, there's kind of a more logical kind of steps that go through your mind. Also, because poetry is just so visual on the page that you're also like changing one word changes the way it looks on the page. Which and is that something you're you're pretty conscious of? I don't think I'm like overly conscious um, of it, but I think it just feels more dramatic when you alter something because it's not like these lines are being sucked up onto the next line and mm -hmm. no one's really going to notice, but it's like changing the kind of balance or the weighting. And I think subconsciously, you know, when you're writing poetry, you're definitely thinking about how it looks on the page. You know, what helps me is if I, if I write a poem and I just put it away for a week because if I try to write a poem and even edit it the next day or hours later, it just doesn't, I'm like, I don't want to change this even if I don't yeah. like it. Usually time, just giving it time to just sit. Because a week later, I'm willing to be a lot more reckless. Yeah, I find I find that my shortest pieces are the ones that took me the longest to write. Yeah. Because it's that process. Like writing the first draft, that's whatever, and then even revising it the first couple times, it's like you're still you're still like doing enough to it where it feels like okay, I'm not I'm changing things, but I'm not like really doing too much. And then when you have to go in and like hack it up or something, yeah. it's like well, fuck. Yeah. You know the like laborious like word by word. Yeah, definitely. Time is. I'm going to say here when I get that sort of thing because, yeah, trying to edit right after you write something is just not a good idea.
I mean, not like people really tend to do that, but sometimes you're like, you want to, because you're like, oh, I like what I've just written. And usually you like what you write right after you've written it. Or yeah, you it's hate like, it. It's like, it's like either fine or the worst thing in the world. Right. You're like, oh, this is like, okay. Or it's awful and you want to delete it immediately. But either either way, you know, you're kind of like, well, let me like look back and see what I can change. But you can't really. Yeah, I hate I hate when I'm um, I'm just on deadline for something, and it's just like I need three days, not of work, not mm-hmm. of anything, to, to like put this, yeah. yeah, put this in a in a file. Yeah, I mean, I totally find that with papers as well, really anything, but maybe not. Yeah, music too. Yeah, you still got. You'll be like, okay, shit, I'm stuck on this. Like, this needs to just go away for a minute. Yeah, even in the studio, like we call it ear break, but like, <laughs> even if you like love what you're working on in that moment and you want to keep working just force yourself to like give your ears a rest because I feel like they just start getting like filled with all sorts of things and they're not really hearing exactly what's coming out clearly mm-hmm. I guess the last thing I'm going to ask before I have you just quickly read is um, when you're when you're writing poetry do you ever have this um, you know, are you are you thinking about it as a this is a thing that is meant to be spoken, or this is something that is meant to be looked at, or is there a divide at all for you? It's funny. I don't usually. I usually think of it as something to be kind of read and looked at, and not necessarily spoken. Or maybe someone speaking it to themselves. I find myself kind of reading poetry that I read out loud, if if I'm really drawn to it. But for me, I much much prefer to to read poetry I have a hard time actually kind of sometimes like with readings I mean it depends on who's reading if, if someone's reading it and then that's very intrinsic to their work it's obviously different but there's like the, the voice like there's definitely a voice that right. people sometimes use and that voice can be kind of just like oh this is very relaxing and like yeah and you're like by. yeah exactly so I'm usually more in the like can I read this on my own camp but then you know that can be totally derailed by Someone whose writing is totally meant to be. Needs to be. Yeah, yeah. needs to be is a better way to <laughs> needs to be read. Yeah, which I which I really admire. Um, I I don't think my work necessarily lends itself to be read aloud. Not that I I mean, and I don't think that has anything to do with the sounds, but just more with how the writer feels about what's being written. <laughs> Yeah, there's this, um, I don't know if you listen to This American Life, but this is a great episode, pretty famous, I guess, where Starly Kine gets broken up with, and, like, their relationship had something to do with um, Phil Collins. Oh, and, I didn't know this episode. Oh, and she's like, I'm going to write a Torch song, and that's how I'm going to get over this guy. And that's so she great. calls Phil Collins. There you go. And he, he gives her advice, because I think, because what, what she was struggling with was the words just looked so stupid on the page. Mm-hmm. And then she realized as soon as you made somebody sing it, she couldn't sing, so she had, like, right. actual, like, Someone she had friends who like, could sing. Like, <laughs> they sang it. She's yeah, like, oh. Singers. Yeah. yeah, she's like, oh, this doesn't suck now. Because, like, if you look at, like, yeah. Torch songs especially, if yeah. you look at the lyrics, they're just awful. Well, that's kind of how I feel about, I don't necessarily think, like, the lyrics that, I don't think, not, I shouldn't say necessarily, I don't think the lyrics that Jack and I write are awful, but I think on the page, they get, you know, there's just, it's not right. It's flat. It's flat. It's a lot flatter than I, than I would ever kind of, or what I'd ever want to have people read. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, the kind of a big divide between my poetry and the lyrics we write. Okay, actually, um, you know what? Because you've got 
performance you need to, or a rehearsal you need to get to. Oh, yeah. And we play your music on our podcast. Um, I might actually just, unless you are dying to read. Oh, um, I, I definitely, I don't have to. <laughs> okay, I'm going to let you, I'm going to, I'm going to try to respect your time. Um, thank you so well, much for sitting well. down with me. Thank you. So that was my interview with Eliza Callahan. This podcast was brought to you in part by The Blue and White. And thank you to Eliza as part of Jack and Eliza for the music you heard this week. Check out the rest of our episodes at our website, revisioncu.tumblr.com, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Have a good one. Hold it right.